Hey guys, uh, we're in Luke 13 this morning, so um, grab your Bibles and, and uh, take a look at Luke 13. Um, we've started in verse 6, and it's not a long passage, uh, but we'll read some more later. But let me read you the parable that is under examination this morning. Um, Luke chapter 13, at verse 6, it reads like this. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answering him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. Hey guys, I'd like to begin this morning with just a bit of a tip on how to study your Bibles. Um... But not only will it be a tip, it will also take us into the parable that we're going to look at today. Here's the tip. Our, our text, uh, our, our parable this morning is, of course, found in chapter 13. But to understand it aright, you really have to go get something out of chapter 12. And here's the tip. These chapter breaks... Um, are, are not inspired. They are put in there by a publisher hundreds of years ago just for our convenience sake. But those, those chapter breaks oftentimes interrupt the flow of the narrative. And, and they become a hindrance to rightly understanding what's being said. Um, let, me, let me just show you what I mean. And that'll take us into the text itself. Look with me at verse 54 of chapter 12. 1254. I got to read this real quick. I'm I'm just just going to race through it. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming and so it happens. And when you see the the south wind blowing, you say there will be uh, uh, something, there will be scorching heat and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Okay, two things I would show you about that little paragraph. First of all, he's speaking to large crowds. Do you see that in verse 54? And then he tells us who is in those large crowds in verse 56. He says that in those large crowds, there are lots of hypocrites. Now watch this. Go to chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at that very time. Do you see that at that very time? The point is, what he's saying in 13 and 1, 13 1 and following, is addressed to the same crowd that is mentioned in 54, 1254, that is so full of hypocrites. Now watch this, 13.6, and he told this parable. Do you see, ladies and gentlemen, there's no break in the action What he says in this parable 
and in that little dialogue at the opening five verses of 13, are said to the same crowd that, are, that, are, that is mentioned in 1254. So to, to rightly interpret um, our parable, which is 13, 6 through 9, you need to go back to 1254. And sometimes you even need to go further back than that. Um, but it's, it's having gone up there that we are steered in the right direction as to the point that Jesus is trying to make in the parable under examination. You get that. So there's your tip. <laughs> there's your tip in how to study your Bibles. Um, but you also see we are now knee deep in this parable. This is a parable um, uniquely designed to speak to an audience that is full of hypocrites. Ooh. We hate that word, don't we? Jesus is the word is the one that uses the word. Um, Jesus is the one that is saying that the people to whom he is speaking um, are guilty of hypocrisy. That's something that we, I think we'd all agree, we never want to be guilty of. None of us would ever like to be charged with hypocrisy. But that is what he is saying about the audience to which he is speaking. And that, ladies and gentlemen, influences how we understand the parable that is under examination this morning. So, um, here's the first thing that I want you to see about the parable. Um, I want you to see the worldview of of the hypocrite. Now, guys, um, you, you, may, you may remember um, when we started this, this series on parables, I preached an introductory sermon about parables in general. Uh, I said several things there that, that I hoped would help you in terms of your own study of parables. But there was two things that I said, or, or two among others that I said. I said, first of all, um, don't get bogged down in the details of the parable. Parables normally have one major message, look, uh, find it, and, and, and let that uh, be the message to you. Our parable this morning is a classic example. Look at verse 7, and he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, you'd be amazed at the amount of uh, effort that goes into trying to explain those three years. Some say they represent the three years of, um, of Christ's ministry. Some say they represent um, prophet, priest, and kings. There was another commentator that says they, they represent law, prophets, and Christ. I would suggest to you, humbly, I hope, it doesn't matter. It's a detail that ought not bog you down. It doesn't change the, the overall point of the parable. Okay, So don't get bogged down in the details. Another thing that I said in that introductory sermon was this. I said that um, I told you what the word parabole. The Greek word for parable is the word parabole. And I told you what it meant. The word parabole means to throw alongside. Jesus uses parables and he throws them alongside to give illustration of the 
point that he's trying to make or points that he's trying to make. Guys, this parable that we're studying this morning is thrown right alongside an exchange, a skirmish, a dialogue that, that Jesus had with that large crowd that we mentioned in 1254. That crowd, you know, that is rich in hypocrites. And in that dialogue and exchange, a worldview comes to light, a false worldview that he addresses in the parable. Let me show you that exchange. It's in 13, 1 through 5. There's this dialogue, this skirmish between him and his audience. Uh, Somebody comes to Jesus and tells him of two current events. Hey, Jesus, did you hear about those Galileans whose blood uh, Pilate took and and put in his own uh, sacrifices? Um, Verse 1, Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices and he answered them. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Guys, the parable that we're looking at is thrown alongside that. Verses one through five. The parable is being used by Jesus to expose a false idea, a false worldview, a a worldview that that is typical or is at least part of the world of hypocrisy. Um, You see, that worldview in verses 1 through 5, do you see it? Jesus says, do you think? Do you think? No, no, you're completely wrong. But I do know how you think. You think that bad things don't happen to good people. You think that if you live a morally excellent life, then you're in line for all of God's applause. You think that people get rewarded that, that, that good people get rewarded with good things and that bad people get hammered by bad things. Those Galileans whose blood uh, uh, sac- uh, that was used by Pilate in his sacrifices and that crowd, that uh, those 18 people who were crushed, well, those must have been some bad people doing some bad stuff to have that happen to them. That's how you think. And that's wrong. 
according to your worldview, the reason that things like this didn't happen to you is because you're good people. And those bad things, those just happen to those worse sinners. But I'm not one of those, see? So uh, those bad things didn't happen to me. (laughs) Do you think like that, says Jesus? But I tell you, that's wrong. Um, But, uh, you know, that that was in the first century, and people don't think like that anymore. Guys, could I humbly suggest to you that I think that's exactly how people think. Particularly among people who have never heard and understand the gospel. And so you have, um, you have a rabbi who writes a book entitled, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? That sells scads of millions. Because you see, according to that worldview, that's not supposed to happen. Bad things are not supposed to happen to good people. So why do bad things happen to good people? You know, I showed you this a couple of years ago. I keep it in my drawer because I just think it's so compelling. It's a greeting card that I found. Susie was in a store shopping, and I was with her, and and I was just bumbling around in the store. And I found this, this, this greeting card, and I just think it says volumes. Of course, here's why I was attracted to it. It's red and it says, you no longer have to worry about burning in hell. Well, you can understand why I was attracted to that. You know, you no longer have to worry about burning in hell. And then you open it up and and this is the message on the inside. What you did was really nice. Thanks a million. Guys, do you get the message of that? The message is simply, because you were nice, bad things aren't going to happen to you because you were nice. You don't ever have to worry about hell because nice people don't go to hell. Same worldview. Let Let me give you one other example. Back in 2005, when uh, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, there were some uh, religious spokesmen who explained that hurricane by saying this. The reason that New Orleans got hit by a hurricane that was so terrible is because... It was God's judgment on their homosexual sin. Those are some bad people down there. So bad things happen to them. Guys, um... Do you see the necessary corollary to having said something like stupid? The necessary corollary goes something like this. But we're good people. Because that hurricane didn't hit us. Because as you know, 
if you're a worse sinner than everybody else, you get a tower that falls on you. Or Pilate takes your blood and mixes it with his sacrifices. Gang, there is such a strident self-promotion in that whole worldview that, that, that has such an air of superiority to it. We're not as bad as they are, and therefore, no hurricane hit me. Now, with that in mind, guys, we come to the second point, which uh, is really headlong into the parable itself. I want you to see an Israel without figs. Gang, Israel prided herself on being better than everybody else. Always has. It is Israel and them. Israel and the goyim. Israel and the nations. Israel and everybody else. And the fact that God had chosen Israel, that idea had been corrupted into a worldview of moral superiority. Now, that fig tree in the parable, that's Israel. And that's not the first time that Jesus had called Israel a fig tree. But, but notice this also. Uh, this man had a fig tree planted in a vineyard. What's a fig tree doing in a vineyard? A vineyard is where you raise grapes. <laughs> what is a fig tree doing in there? The, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, there's a, there's a larger something, a vineyard, in which we find a smaller piece, a fig tree. And this man owns them both. He owns the fig tree and he owns the vineyard. He owns the nation of Israel and he owns the larger place in which Israel is found, the the world. God owns it all. Um, God's rights, as on display in this parable, um, are the absolute rights of proprietorship. That fig tree is in that vineyard at the discretion of the owner. This world is his. And so is that tree. So is that nation Israel and everything else in it. Did you just breathe? You breathe his air. It's all his. As owner of both, um, he's, 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 he owns the tree, he owns the land, he has the moral right of expectation, perfectly justifiable for him to come looking for fruit. And he has the right to discard 
that which he owns. Now, guys, according to this parable, God discards not because the tree is barren, but because the tree was false. It only pretended to be a fig tree. It, um, it, was, very, it was very proud about being a fig tree. It was so special. It, was, it, it had lots of fig leaves. But ladies and gentlemen, Jesus never said you will know them by their leaves. Having the outward appearance, but not the inward grace. You know what that makes you? It makes you a hypocrite. If you only have the outward appearance, but no inward grace, that's what a hypocrite is. You know, I found this Interesting. I'm, I'm no farmer and I'm no expert on fig trees, but I did read this in, when, as I was preparing for this. Fig trees are odd. Uh, a fig tree, uh, in a fig tree, the fruit appears before the leaves. And while the fruit is ripening, the leaves grow larger and larger, obscuring the fruit. And so the fruit is found within the dense foliage of of those fig leaves. The point? On the outside, and to all external appearances, Israel was a pleasant sight. But when you pulled away all the outside stuff, There wasn't any fruit. And everything is riding on the fruit. And when all you have is appearances and no fruit, that means... You're a hypocrite. Now don't mistake me, ladies and gentlemen. The fruit is not what saves Israel. The fruit merely proves that Israel was saved. The fruit merely proves that Israel was real. But when there is no fruit, it just means you're a hypocrite. That's that's the definition of hypocrisy. Appearances only. Uh, All outsides, no insides. No fruit means you're not real. Even though the outward appearances might suggest otherwise. The third thing I want you to see about the parable is this relationship between the owner and the vine dresser. The owner comes looking for fruit, and he finds none. But in this parable, you will notice that the owner is working immediately. 
not immediately. He is working immediately through the, the vine dresser who is set over all of the affairs of the vineyard. And on the dual basis of its barrenness and that it was a threat to the other trees, that is, it's, it's encumbering the ground, it is, it is robbing the, the soil of essential nutrients and, and uh, moisture and sunlight, the owner says to the vine dresser, cut it down. The vine dresser intercedes, pleading for more time, extra care for a year, not, not indefinitely. Oh, he knows that the owner is patient. And though the owner has great patience, he does not have infinite patience. The, the, the vine dresser does not ask for mercy. He does not say, oh, listen, Mr. Owner, uh, why don't we just skip this fruit thing just this one time? The, the, the vine dresser recognizes the right of the owner to expect fruit. And he knows that the fruit has been sought year after year with increasing disappointment. He knows that the owner has a proprietary right over all that he owns. And yet this vine dresser, this vine dresser can make dead trees live. Hey guys, you know who that vine dresser in the parable is, don't you? That's Jesus. That one year of verse 8, that extra care, that extra care has been done for Israel in spades. Her response? Rebellion at every turn, an evil lip service, and a rejection of the Messiah. Receiving the most diligent of care. Israel continues to prove to be utterly barren. And when she is finally chopped down, no one will be able to complain about a rush to judgment. She's had the truth, and she hates it. Those are Jesus' words in this parable. To Israel. My words are simply a feeble attempt to reapply his words to this audience. Over the vineyard, ladies and gentlemen, over the world that he owns. God has placed his only son who by the power of the Holy Spirit makes dead trees live. But guys, he has done far more work than, than merely cultivating the soil and, and um, working hard at, at uh, advancing the truth. No, no. The vine dresser went on to become the sin-bearing substitute for all of my barrenness, all of my, my false living, 
all of my hypocrisy. His spirit grants me life. And I begin to bear fruit. Starting with the fruit of faith and repentance. But listen, brethren. Everything is riding on the fruit. It's not the fruit that saves me. God saves me. The fruit merely proves that I'm saved. The fruit merely proves that I'm real. Now, I I would be less than faithful to the text if I did not put this question to you. To what can you point as evidences of his work in your life? To what can you point as fruit To what can you point as the result? No, to to what can you point as being in your life only as the result of the inward work of the Holy Spirit in your life? When you peel away all the outward stuff, all the leaves, you know, the church attendance and, and the uh, giving to the United Way, and when, you, when you peel all that away, what fruit is there to demonstrate That grace has made you a new creature in Christ. Can you? Can you point to something as an evidence that by the power of the Holy Spirit, He has made you a new creature in Christ. Guys, the sweet good news of the gospel message is that after years of barrenness, after years of hypocrisy, Jesus by his spirit makes dead trees live. And the first piece of fruit that is seen is a yieldedness, a submission to Jesus Christ as as your Savior and King.
can you point? To that one piece of fruit. Because all the other fruit comes as a result of that. Our Father, if there is any fruit in our lives, it is there because you have in sovereign grace drawn us to Jesus Christ in all of his beauty. If there is any evidences of us being brand new in Christ, it's because you have exchanged our heart of stone and replaced it with the heart of flesh. And as we sit here today, staring at that piece of fruit of submission and yieldedness to Jesus Christ, we recognize that it is there because of what you have wrought in our lives. And we love you for it. That you've made us new. That you have, that you have borne us again unto a new life. Now, Father, get glory upon glory for yourself as we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, seek to bear more fruit for the advancement of the, and the, the establishment of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.